Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. I've spent 20 years working with and getting to know the people who've made water their life's work, and now I've created this podcast to allow you, the listener, to get to know them as well. This episode of Water for Fighting is brought to you by Florida Water Advocates. Florida Water Advocates, where we're tackling the water resource challenges of the future today. Now it's my distinct pleasure to introduce my second ever conversation partner, the executive director of the Southwest Florida Water Management District, Brian Armstrong. Brian's career in water management began over 26 years ago as a newly minted hydrologist and geologist, and he has served in other key positions at the district, including a tenure as the assistant executive director. He's from Tampa, Florida, and attended college at the University of South Florida, where he earned both bachelor's and master's of science degrees in geology. In addition to many other honors, Brian was most recently the recipient of the 2022 Wade Hopping Leadership Award given by the Florida Association of Water Quality Control. Without further ado, let's join our conversation already in progress. I had, uh, and you probably had this many more times than I did at Northwest, big giant development. You know, in the end, it's going to be thousands of homes. Uh, you got a developer who's getting some stuff wrong on the front end. You know, to the point where you have to deal with it um, from that compliance side of things, um, you know, penalties and such. But then on from the other end, you have someone coming to you. It's uh, this. It was partly uh, uh, group, part, you know, but mostly made up of folks that live in the general area in Tallahassee. And they say, "Why are we, Why are you allowing them to do this?" And I said, I don't think you understand my job. It's like, it's not, it's like, if you're asking me off the record, it's like, do I like this? The answer is not particularly. Like, all these folks have a right to have us, like, but they're going to drive right by my house to get to Costco and the movie theater and all the places that people go, right? Um, I said, but, but if, if they comply with the law, it's like, my job is to, is to issue them a permit and let them build the houses that, they park cars in front of that are going to end up driving by my house on Saturday morning, headed to Costco. That's, you know, it is what it is. It's their way to get at, we don't want development. And your issuance of a permit is one step in that. If, if I can intervene at that point, I may be able to stop this development. No, we don't approve it. No, you know, we don't decide hey, that makes great place for development because the roads and the schools and all that's going to work. And that's, it's, it's rarely the stormwater issue until after it's built. It's just an entry point to try and stop development, which there's the disconnect in, well, in everything the district does. We don't approve developments. We just make sure they comply with the law that's right. once they do. But everybody knows they can leverage our permit to try and stop the development. And that's what we face on the front end on the back end, if they're complaining, it usually is a legitimate stormwater issue. Yeah, and it's funny though. Like uh, I hadn't thought of it precisely like that before, but it is almost all like any of the ones that I've seen. It, the stormwater issue—that's the entry for opposition to one of these developments. I've seen in, in, in other places as well, where it's like, "What about that?" Like, that's the thing. It's like you're what you're really worried about is all the new traffic you're going to do. Now, there are some areas like around Lake Lori and those things where you have historic flooding. 
So people are hypersensitive to it. And they any development, it is an issue for them. But for the most part, it's a NIMBY thing. And that's a, I mean, and I think people think that it's a finer line to walk than it is, right? I mean, when you, when you look at this, and I know when uh, you have your regulatory services folks, you know, that are uh, doing environmental resource permitting, it's like it's not that fine of a line for you. It's, it either does or it doesn't, right? Um, local governments, ostensibly, are supposed to be making decisions on, you know, where they want neighborhoods and where they want commercial and where they want industrial uh, uh, development yeah. to go. And for us, for water managers, it's pretty straightforward. It's like, here's what the law says. We have a rule uh, that reflects that. We turn that, we turn that rule into a applicant's handbook, right? And so it's very straightforward for engineers. For us, yeah. <laughs> not, not, not the general public. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it, you know, well, that's the age-old argument. It, is that something that you work on? Actually, I was at a Swanee River Water Management District meeting last month. I was uh, passing through, and I wanted to see uh, wanted to see Hugh Thomas, and that was the you know the avenue to to check in. I was on my way to Orlando, I think, and I stayed for the uh, most of the I think most if not least the first first half of the of the meeting. And they're putting out for little district, the littlest district. God bless them. Are they smaller than Northwest? They are somehow somehow smaller than Northwest. Our little Northwest with its, uh, I guess, what, uh, 1.4 million people, which is about how many people are in Hillsborough County in all of Northwest Florida. Yeah. So we have some, you know, we have some legit play. It's growing, obviously, but it is, it's not Pinellas County. It's not Hillsborough County. But they're, they're actually doing some interesting educational work, which is educating the public from a, from a level that's not, hey, I'm going to send my best engineer to come explain to you how stormwater management systems are supposed to are supposed to work, and it's like I don't even know I don't even know what you just said, <laughs> and so and they're great. I mean, I love I love engineers. Um, I like the way their brains work, but public education is probably not their forte, right? And so they put together, it's really some interesting stuff they're doing where I'm like, wow, this is, this is just, just good enough to where I could understand it, you know? That was almost one of my biggest mistakes I've made in administration. They came up to me, my comms people, begging me to hire a videographer, which I have since been corrected. That's not what they call them anymore. What do they call them now? I have no idea. Media something. Uh. And uh, I'm like, have you lost your damn mind? <laughs> and they're like, no, you got to understand. There's, you know, videos the way we reach people. And there's this Facebook and this TikTok and all this. And I'm like, get out of my office. So then that was Michael, the executive staff member. So then Robin comes in. And then someone else. And now I got three of them just hammering me about this person. So I said, well, you find the position. And we'll do it. Do I? Is there anything else? Well, we got to buy him a camera. It's five grand. I'm like, no. <laughs> I said, use what you got. So that was the negotiated middle. I have since bought him a camera. Of course. But my goodness, even I have fallen in love with these. They're 
five minutes or less, info things. We even use cartoon people now, Brett, and it's just like exploded. And we lent Casey out to help DEP and, and South Florida and, and even St. Uh, Swanee. We sent them to go help. Now I think they got their own people now because of its impact. And, uh, you know, the only social media I do is LinkedIn. But You always were. And, and just for the, the history lesson for folks that are listening, like you and I met, uh, boy, what was that, 18 years ago? 18, 18, 20 19, years yeah. ago, somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. Um, I was a, I was just a guy doing some intergovernmental stuff um, in the eastern portion of the district. And you were a young geologist being awesome. And and I even remember those days, the the Speakers Bureau, the outreach to, you know, for educators and, and schools. I had to stretch myself a little bit and going to elementary schools and middle schools and talking about uh, water conservation, the water cycle. But Southwest really has uh, been kind of a vanguard in a lot of that stuff. I mean, St. John's has done some quality work. And I'm thinking of, and I'm not thinking of like recently, everyone's kind of stepped up their game um, with maybe one exception (laughs) that I won't name. Um, Maybe have a talk with them. Uh, But but Southwest has always seen, because, and I wonder, because you've been there since 1997? Yeah. And, and so those days, I was, I was not, I was going to be, you know, a history professor. That's what I was going to be. And little did I realize that I wasn't. But I do know very well the water wars growing up in, in Hillsborough County. If you were Hillsborough, Pasco, or Pinellas County, you knew about the water wars. And so 1997, you're starting at the district. And you just, uh, help me remember that, a little bit of that, that history, because I, I wonder if some of this outreach was a function of reality, which is you have wildly controversial things going on. Pasco County is really angry at Pinellas County, right? Because sure. you and Hillsborough County is just like, well, heck, we'll take the water. That's great too. And but the, I mean, the real issue was, you know, places where you know lots of folks live now. You're pumping, they're pumping in dry. I mean, we're as close to dry as one can get. I mean, we have a porous aquifer, obviously, but you know, sinkholes, wetland impacts, other surficial water body impacts. Do you think some of it comes from that? Which is you just have to be able to explain what the heck's going on. Yeah, you know, the history of the water war is pretty simple. Pinellas County is a beautiful peninsula, beach community. Uh, the population exploded there. It's, for the most part, a built-out county. Um, but they are on a peninsula, an island, surrounded by salt water. So as they developed their wells and pumped more, they were getting salty, and they needed water. So what they did is they started purchasing land in Hillsborough and Pasco County and building big old pipelines to put well fields in those counties. Long story short, you're right, a lot of environmental impact. 3,000 lakes and wetlands were drying up. We've had wetlands completely go dry, um, lakes completely go dry as a result of this pumping. And at their maximum, uh, the, the group at the time was called West Coast Regional Water Supply Authority. You know, they were pumping around 160 million gallons per day out of these well fields in the other counties. 
causing these environmental impacts. They came in for a permit increase, believe it or not. District said no. You remember what year that was? Oh, that was the that was the late eighties, um, and then the wars started. Uh, I wouldn't say there was much education at that time. The media and everything was used more in the in the warfare, uh, throwing spears and barbs at each other. <laughs> And so the district denied that request. Unfortunately, there was probably about between 20 and $25 million spent on attorneys and nothing happened. Tallahassee stepped in. They said, hey, look, guys, you either figure out how to fix this or we will, which nothing against the Tallahassee folks. It's just you want to keep a localized issue local and its solutions local. So what was it? Was that from at that time? Was that would that been in uh, DEP or directly from, say, the governor's office who was concerned about that? Yeah, it was more directed by. Well, DEP has always had a limited oversight over the districts. And a lot of the messages from the governor's office comes via DEP. Sure. But the direction was from the governor's office. It was a lot of local municipalities suing each other. You had state agencies suing each other. And someone finally woke up and said, this is ridiculous. Bad for business. Bad for business, great for the attorneys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, we, what happened was what was called the partnership agreement. And long story short, they agreed to cut that pumping down from 160 million gallons per day to 90. Our district agreed to give them $183 million to do that. Uh, one of the biggest parts of that was developing new supplies and conservation. We also gave them $90 million for conservation. So, you know, they went through a process of picking projects, and it included surface water reservoirs, desal plants, surface water treatment plants, you know, these huge pipelines you could drive cars through, right, um, to move this water from north to south at Hillsborough County and up to Pasco. It was uh, a tremendously expensive endeavor. I came in almost at the end of the fight, and the management of those projects, which actually was the, the fun time. Um, but I still got to see the animosity from the folks left over from those wars. And, and uh, you know, it, it wasn't always friendly. And that, stay, that, that stayed that way, right? After the development of, what, Tampa Bay Water? Tampa Bay Water was created as part of this partnership agreement. So West Coast became Tampa Bay Water. And then we agreed to build these projects and give them a bunch of money. But the it, in those days that I remember, it's it hard feelings last among a lot of these you know elected officials, folks that have you know on the ground experience that that had to go through depositions and lawsuits and all the the expense that go you know that comes with it, and so that that took a while. Have you seen? And I want I'll get back to to some of those solutions because some of them I mean while incredibly innovative for Florida have had their have had their own missteps as, as you know many big you know big projects and big ideas do but but have you seen a softening over over the last 30 years almost with those stakeholders those partners to those three counties everybody was still a little bitter and i didn't see a change until you had change in leaderships at the organizations okay um, not just the top folks but you know, within the organizations, the people who had been deposed, the people who had to, who had to be part of that litigation, the folks whose work was questioned, that doesn't change till they leave. And that has slowly happened over time. You forgot, uh, you got some great leadership now at Tampa Bay Water. And I think I have a great relationship with Chuck Carden, who's the new uh, executive director there. I've known him for 20 plus years. We, we grew up through our organizations together. So yeah, it has settled but the interesting part is that it's starting to happen again because they're needing to develop the new source for the next 20 years. 
believe it or not, um, reuse, potable reuse has kind of set people on edge again because in their agreement, these members said, hey, we're going to get together and we're going to develop this authority and any new sources we bring online is going to be developed by Tampa Bay Water. Well, they were talking about traditional sources. Nobody mentioned potable reefs. Well, let's stop. I mean, uh, for folks that are listening, I want to make sure that you and I know a lot of this uh, this history, and some of it is uh, current events. But I want to make sure I pause when we talk about well, what it is that you're you're referring to, and it's it's direct. Is you have both indirect and you have direct potable reuse of wastewater, and the, the point is that the treatments have gotten the technology has gotten to the point where you can literally take all of the, anything that's bad in, in that water and turn it into something that is perfectly potable for human consumption. However, it comes with a stigma attached to it, right? But, but Swift Mud has been, as with the, many other things, a vanguard on, on that issue. So continue with, you've been dealing with that for, I wanna say, six, seven years or so? Potable reuse? Yeah. Yeah, over a decade. We've been working with other uses for, historically, people put it on lawns, people put it on golf sure. courses, it's used in industries for cooling towers, but the idea of consuming it is probably a decade old. And, you know, it's dressed up a lot of ways, but, you know, cut to the chase, it's the water that comes from the sewage plant that we treat and, we're, and drink. And the difference between indirect and direct Indirect is what we refer to as the kiss of nature. We put it in a wetland, we put it in the ground and pull it back out. That's already happening in California. Direct is something you treated the sewage plant, there's an additional treatment put on the end, and then you put it back in the drinking water system. That's similar to like Namibia and Singapore. It's, it's done over the world. So it's not, it's not new. Uh, RO technology, you know, matter of fact, RO technology creates a water that we refer to as hot because it has, it's demineralized. So if you put it in your pipes, it's going to eat your pipes because water always wants to go back to, you know, an equal balance. So you actually have to put lime and things. So RO can treat it. So the science is there. It is just simply that yuck factor that people look at right. when it comes to that. Scientifically, we can prove sure. it'll be okay. Have you made, has there, what's the progress or has there been progress in, in that a public education campaign or working with your partners on that? Yeah, we put together a web page for DEP because of the statutes that were required to begin this education process on potable reuse a few years ago. There is a web page out there that we helped design for DEP that can give you a lot of the answers to these questions. There's been multiple pilot tests. We're actually cutting the ribbon uh, next month on one in Plant City. Uh, Popka has one. They're, they're, they're all over the place. They've actually done it in, uh, in San Antonio, but they do it as like an emergency only. You know, when their streams go dry, people will drink it, um, but then they shut it off and go back to their regular source. So mm -hmm. we're really close to this becoming a normal household thing. I mean, but that's a, those are choices that, that we make as communities. I mean, when you say it's, you get to, we get to choose, you know, every day, every year, every decade is uh, people like moving to Florida a lot. And places like West Central Florida, East Central Florida, Northeast Florida, South Florida, like it, they're, it's wonderful. Like Florida is awesome. I love Florida. I've spent my entire life here except when I was in the army. But those are choices to make, which is you can only balance what we have to balance between natural systems 
and the demand, you know, for the resource for uh, folks that live here and that want to live here. And yeah. so, is it, I mean, it, it, it seems like it's it has to become more straightforward like that. But but then again, I, you know, I grew up in the it's it, we moved to East Hillsborough County in 1975, and you know, my neighborhood used to be an orange grove, and I'm sure the folks you know a block up the street didn't want our neighborhood and the folks that lived in my neighborhood didn't want the next ones and so on so i guess maybe there's that factor that you have to balance or is that a part of the balance where people are saying like well we don't want them brett to be honest with you i would say very few people get any of that right i I refer to them as my golf and hunting buddies they have no clue they believe everything they see in the paper they don't they don't appreciate the science. It's not of interest to them. And all they care about, turn on the tap, water comes out, life is good. Right. So it's not always in the back of their mind. You know, I and you live it every day. We understand the repercussions. But, you know, so what I will tell my golf and hunting buddies to make it simple, I said, look, we live on a peninsula. We will never run out of water. We have just run out of cheap water. So we will always find a way to provide water. That's our charge at the district. It's not, hey, you got to help pay for it. You got to help build it. None of that. It's, we have to identify it. It's a peninsula. So what we're going through right now is what's the next low hanging, next lowest hanging fruit? What's going to be the most economical way to develop potable supplies? Desal is expensive. We have experience in that. Potable reuse is the next most economical development of a potable supply of a resource that's not being used. Of uh, and is it groundwater is probably the easiest, right? Straight Florida and groundwater is yep. cheap. Then is it surface water or is it direct potable? It's surface water. It's surface water. But you got, where you got to collect it makes a big difference. If right. you can collect it at the bottom of the hill, it's a lot cheaper than trying to collect it at the top. Yeah, and that's I mean that's one of the other those other places where. Y'all have been part at the district of building these uh, these large regional organizations, associations, sometimes looser than others, the Peace River, Minnesota River Water Supply Authority. You've been part with them, uh, partnered to build reservoirs and I think some ASR. Yep. Uh, and I mean, do you, in that, in that way, looking forward to those, like, do you still find that whether it be Tampa Bay Water, Peace River, Minnesota, that those are still success stories? Are you still, when you're, when you're developing your regional water supply plan, which are you alluding to when talking about, you know, your, your statutory requirement to identify where these resources are, are going to come from for whoever's coming? That's, you know, that's the job. Is it, are they, are they, would you still consider them success stories in, in that sense of, hey, we're moving forward? Because we've seen some, missteps and I'll talk about, you know, we'll talk about some of that. I want to talk about desal and the, you know, trying to, trying to give birth to that technology here. Um, but you alluded to, it's like, it's expensive, right? But, but with these other sources, uh, the surface water sources, the, the offline reservoirs, um, and you have several now, are they success stories? Cause you, from my, from the view from the outside, you're constantly trying to meet this growing demand and you have to get more and more clever and it seems like you've done that but as part of that is 
natural stutters and starts. The Bill Young Reservoir may be an example of it. you've got a you know it's a you know it's a good useful large I've been at the bottom of it before they filled it with water reservoir. You've got a desal plant which produces how much water per day now? Is it 15, 15 million a day, something like that? No, they probably keep it closer to six to eight based okay. on its cost and the other available sources. Gotcha. But that was, that plan originally, how much was it? About 160 million, 165 million, something like that. And the district paid for half of it, right? We we're actually trying to fund the majority of that. Okay. So of the $185 million, most of it was allocated towards the desal plant because we wanted a uh, drought-proof supply. And you got that. It's like, But what you also got was the natural things that come with being forward-thinking, which is the little technical problems that happen with this new thing. And I don't, you know, still, if you ask me to really describe what reverse osmosis does, I mean, like, you know, general idea it's like but it's, it was you know brand new cutting edge at the time but you had issues you know f filter issues and finance issues and construction issues and all these things like how do you manage and you you were at least you certainly at the district uh i am i am quite certain not in charge of, <laughs> of constructing uh the desal plant it's like but is that at this point at long last do you consider do you consider the desal plant a success story? Do you consider uh, the Bill Young Reservoir success stories? Things that you know that if nothing else, you learn from along the way uh, as you're developing these resources. So, without getting into the technical issues of each one of those facilities, let's talk about what the overall goal was, Brett. You had an organization pumping 160 million gallons per day out of counties that they weren't serving. You had lakes and wetlands drying up. You had the district denying a permit. And at the end of the day, they came together and said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut that permit from 160-ish down to 90. And the district's going to help you pay for alternative supplies, and we're going to try and recover these lakes and wetlands. Tremendous success. We celebrated last year, well, it's almost two years ago now, the success of it. Because when you have systems that aren't meeting their MFLs, you have to develop what's called a recovery strategy. Our recovery strategy was that whole process, build these projects, cut back. We celebrated the recovery of over 3,000 lakes and wetlands wow. as a result of cutting those permits back. So was it worth it? Was it effective? Absolutely it was, because you haven't seen recovery like that anywhere in this country, maybe in the world, where you brought back 3,000 lakes and wetlands. So yeah. There was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of cursing, but it worked. It worked tremendously. And part of that work is, I mean, obviously it's the day-to-day -day work that hydrologists and geologists and engineers do at, at the district and these other places. Um, but part of solving these things is, is a function of a cooperative funding program that the district has had for a couple of decades now. And, and it's one that, it's certainly the first, it's, I believe, still remains the most robust uh, in the state, and, and, it is, and it's worked. I mean, is, is that part, I mean, a lot of that success seems like it's a, it's a function of your ability to access 
dollars that might go to something else at the district and put it into helping to solve some of these problems, right? I mean, is that fair to say? You hit the nail on the head. So you want people, organizations, water supply authorities, whatever it is, you want them to go in a certain direction. It's not the most cost-effective. It's not the cheapest alternative, probably not the easiest thing to do. How do you get them there? Well, we use our cooperative funding initiative to the word we like to use is incentivize folks to go that direction. So when we put on the table, you know, hundreds and millions of dollars to build alternative water supplies, to do conservation, not just in water supply, but in agricultural and industry and, and, you know, all across the spectrum of what we do, people look at it and it makes it, it makes it economic and enough, green enough that they decide we'll do it with you. And, and if we didn't have that, we'd be back to paying tens of millions of dollars in attorney's fees. That's right. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about how you got to, to, to where you are now after, you know, already a, a good number of years, you know, at the district, what, 25 now, 24, 25, 25 in December. Uh, congratulations. Uh, first I want just to touch on one other point there is Y'all done a pretty interesting job of not just leaving. It's easy. Let me rephrase that completely. It's easy to point fingers. And in some cases, the finger only belongs in one direction, right? It's like when you look at, you know, uh, the Starkey Wellfield in, you know, Pasco County, it's like there's only one direction to point and that's south. But but you didn't, the district hasn't just relied on on that. They haven't relied on, hey, this is all because of uh, residential use. This isn't all because of industrial use. This isn't all because of agricultural use. And that's one thing that we haven't talked about yet is the district also created a program that I, I can vouch for has been emulated elsewhere uh, since then, which is a way of how do you get the the agricultural sectors which is an enormous you know part of you know of that part of the state to work on not just water quantity issues but water quality issues as well it's called the farmers program right and what does that stand for again i always always forget facilitating agricultural resource management if we can do one thing it's acronyms so i twenty does acronyms pretty good too but you got i think it's not us but I mean, tell me a little bit about uh, just a tiny bit about the history of that and how it's going now. You know, that's that's one of my proudest moments at the district. We we actually it's a it's a funny story. We bought a swamp called Flatford Swamp. It's about three thousand acres. Um, Where's Flatford Swamp? Flatford Swamp is in Manatee County, southeast Manatee County. Uh, Myaka River runs through it. And what happened in that instance is a lot of the agricultural runoff, you could believe it or not, you can drown a swamp. So we've, we got about 2,000 of those 3,000 acres died, right? We own it. we got to try and figure out what's going on. The easiest solution, Brett, would have gone and cut all those permits and put all those farmers out of business. Um, so I worked with two growers down there, uh, Pacific Tomato Growers and Faulkner Farms, developing surface water capture projects to offset their groundwater take water out of the swamp, so you're benefiting the additional water in the swamp, you're offsetting groundwater pumping in the Swaka. Long story short, they're very successful projects uh, in doing that. That launched what was farms. Um, 
and Farms is, is a cost share program for farmers that does both address water quantity and water quality. Another uh, huge uh, issue we had down south was in Shell, Joshua, and the Prairie Creek watershed. And this was the other half that launched the whole program in that the water quality was becoming so poor because those wells are more mineralized. Well, what's at the end of where they all come together, all these streams and runoff? City of Punta Gorda, where they get their water supply. So they were under uh, a DEP violation for their water quality. So down there, we got everybody together with the farms. How are we going to do it? We started this backplugging program, improved the water quality. And it's the only, I think it's the only listed impaired water that has been removed off that list mm. as a result of the program. So farms has, has played a big role in help bringing water quantity level, water levels back. Talk in a little bit. About, well, first, let's start with what the program does. Um, well, actually, let's, let's pause for a second and... Acronym city here, obviously. It's like SWUCA is a Southern Water Use Cautionary. Is that right. right? Okay, so what is SWUCA and why is it important? All right, so the Southern Water Use Cautionary was for, basically think of it like this. Within my district, I force south. And same thing, declining water levels, environmental impacts. How are we going to bring back these levels without putting everybody out of business? And it was to a point where, you know, we would have had to cut back 200 million gallons per day, you know, in this area, which means not only would you shut down business, people would have to leave. So that's not happening, right, in the reality of our, our world. So it was, it was a process where we looked at it a couple alternatives. One is... Ag took a pretty big hit, especially in the citrus industry, for reduced quantities. But then we had to develop other alternatives for bringing back the SWUCA or the water levels within the SWUCA. Farms was one of that. It was looked to develop 50 million gallons per day cutbacks. In addition, huge conservation projects we did within the area. So it was all an attempt because what happens when you lower the water levels in the center of the state, you cause saltwater intrusion in the coast to come inward. That's the relationship there where it's all tied together. So our purpose was how are we going to get those water levels back? A lot of rules adopted with SWUCA. We went to court a few times. We, was, we didn't really win SWUCA 1, won SWUCA 2, finally got the rules adopted. And uh, there, it's pretty stringent permitting requirement for the last 20 years within that region. What does that look like? I mean, for folks that don't know, you know, their assumption is, hey, there's a new neighborhood going up and... Uh, Brian Armstrong's a terrible person. It's like, but that's not really how water works, right? It's like you, you've had to create a rule in SWACA that was, as is every, every rule, you know, has its controversy. But explain how that works. Like, how does one now, what's different in how one gets a permit, a consumptive use permit in the SWACA now than before? So let me, I'll describe the most extreme area within the Southern Water Use Caution Area. It's called the MIA, Most Impacted Area, uh, and it's along the coast in southern Hillsborough, northern Manatee County. You come in for a permit, you're out of luck. There are no new quantities available in that area. So if you want water, you're going to have to get it from somewhere. Have you sustained uh, the current quantities, or was there a reduction when you finished the rule? Yeah, we sustained the current quantities. Um, what happens in that area is a, a lot is a permittee will come with another one and say, hey, we're going to transfer some of their quantities onto ours. Now, how that transaction happened, 
we don't know, but maybe they're just best friends. And uh, they come in hand in hand. We transfer quantities associated with that. Or there's an offset. You're going to do something to offset the, the the drawdown. What would that What would that look like? Well, yeah, you know, in some areas it could be you know uh, recharge with reclaimed water, things of that nature. But I'm going to tell you, in the MIA, it's tough. You really don't get quantities unless you you trade with somebody. That's the most extreme example. Then we've got these, uh, let's just call it, we call them the sentinel wells. They're monitoring wells. And if they're at a certain level, we can issue permits. If they're not, no permits. Do you attach the conditions to oh, those permits okay. then? So when when it does reach a lower level, they have to shut it off? They're all conditioned. It's, it's not quite a shut off, but the permitting uh, additional quantities are shut off. And then we deal with it as the permits are renewed or... If there's an environmental impact, every permit we write nowadays says we can come back and digest your quantities. So we, we've been doing that. And uh, here's the good news. We are probably next month going to hit the target SWECA level that we set back 20 years ago. And it's a 10-year average, so it's not, woohoo, we did it this year. Right. It's based on a 10-year average. Wow. We're almost there, Brett. Wow. So if you think about it in our time at the district, we've fixed the lakes in the northern Tampa Bay area. And we're about to hit the SWECA level, which is incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's 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 a lot of collaboration. You know, one big thing we've always done in our district, we're the only one with advisory committees where we bring in, you know, our constituents and the folks we work with every day, and we put them on these advisory committees to get feedback. We still do that. Anytime we have an issue, tremendous outreach. I mean, my pet peeve is spending money on attorneys. It really is. And I have a ton of attorney friends. If they hear this, they're going to laugh. But <laughs> but nothing gets, nothing tangible gets built, and it drives me crazy. So I, to the best of my ability, will always try to avoid litigation before we, you know, decide to cut someone's permit. Or One of the things that, and just touching back on uh, the farmer's program, is one of the things I found remarkable. I came down and saw the some of the first projects uh, that were part of Farms. I remember in those days, I think you had uh, uh, Dave Brown uh, and Steve Minnis. Steve Minnis yeah. um, and they were so excited and so proud to show me. I was in the working for Governor Bush at the time as a little lowly analyst. And I came down to learn about this program. And I remember touring, and the, the the most remarkable part for me is like, great, I yeah, you know, I saw another project. That's that's cool. They're gonna conserve some water, yada yada, uh, cost air. Okay, great. But the thing that I thought was the most remarkable was that the agricultural producers themselves were excited about the program, and that was something that the care that district folks have in farming while also trying to deal with these resource issues, which is something that's like, it stuck with me those years when I ended up in Northwest Florida, I straight up stole the idea in our own way to create a program, but I, you know, but filling it with people who actually care about farmers. And it is obvious when you look at uh, Jeff Wilton and Mark Lucky and these guys, they care about farmers and farming, but they, but you still have a resource that you're trying to, you're trying to figure out at the same time so that the, that you're able to work so well with them, but also reach this, this goal in SWECA, which is if you told me 
five years ago that you were going to hit. I was like, okay, well, I don't know what they're drinking down there in Swift Mud, but good luck to you. That's, a, that's an incredible milestone to be able to, to accomplish that. I want to go back. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, I skipped right over it, which is um, who's Brian Armstrong? Uh, where the hell is he from? And why are we sitting here talking about about water today? So uh, I know a little bit. I mean, you and I have known each other for a while, as we said. You know, I spent some time at University of South Florida. You go got, Bulls. yeah, go Bulls. Um, where were you born? So I was born in Melbourne, Florida. Um, spent very little time there. My dad worked at the Cape. He's not Neil Armstrong, but he did work at the Cape. Uh, then he transferred over um, to work for GTE in Tampa. I was probably two years old, maybe a little younger. So I, I essentially grew up in Hillsborough County, just outside of Tampa. In the Burbs. Um, Which direction? Little area town called Egypt Lake. Lake. Spent most of my life and every free minute I had on that lake fishing. Uh, Spent, uh, as I got older, a lot of times in the woods hunting. Um, And I, you know, that has never left me. The beauty and the, just the ability to get outdoors and get away from the craziness in Florida. Florida's beautiful for those reasons. Our natural resources is why we're here and why everybody comes here. Um, and it's always been a passion of mine. And, and, and in growing up, you always don't make the best decisions. For some reason, I thought engineering would tie to that, but it didn't. <laughs> uh, so I went to USF, of course, to be an, an engineer. And I was a struggling, struggling engineering student. I I really just didn't have a passion for how much force would be on this fulcrum point and this wrench. I mean, I just, there was no hook in it for me. Um, So one day after a struggling summer semester of school, um, just finished some statics test. We started studying at eight in the morning, was in this test for two hours. And I'm like, all right, let's go to happy hour. And the folks were like, now we got to start studying. I'm like, these just aren't my people. <laughs> I looked across and I saw these guys playing Frisbee football and hanging out. And, right. and I was like, who are that? that? Those are the geologists. I'm going to be one of those. <laughs> Actually, my brother-in-law was a geologist. That's partly true there. But my, my brother-in-law was a geologist for Swift Mud. And, you know, so I just blistered him with questions. I love the outdoors. As every geologist thinks they're going to be a rock hound and go work out west. But, you know, I love Florida. I didn't want to leave. So if you want to do geology in Florida, you better understand water right. and aquifers. And the one rock. The, ro- rock. the rock we have here. The one rock we have here. <laughs> and uh, so that was the hook for me. I wanted to stay in Florida. I wanted to do geology. So I, my, my master's degree work was in hydrogeology. Um, and I have been blessed to be able to stay in the community I grew up in. I keep moving a little further north just because it's getting <laughs> people where I live. But, you know, that's the story of, of here and how I got. I actually was a supervisor at United Parcel Service for years wow. before I finished school. There aren't, I don't think there's a single geologist working there. So finished school. That was a great place learned how to learn management, let's just say. And uh, that's where I became the efficiency wonk I am, you know. You know, everything there, we, we knew the average steps a driver took on every route and every, every day. So it just, 
you know, I, I started off wanting to be an industrial engineer. I still love the efficiency stuff, but uh, my passion's in the natural systems and the outdoors and and that's how I got tied into this whole water thing in Swift Mud. That's why I always say it's my, there's some of my, my favorite folks because of the way their, their brains work is, you know, engineers and solving problems. But it is, if that's a thing that, uh, that we nerds have, it's like your, geology is somehow cooler than, than engineering. Is that? <laughs> you said that. <laughs> I may have shook my head, but you right. said it. <laughs> you start out when you're at the, you're at the district. Did you? You worked on the permitting side of things, right? I did. I started off actually in water use permitting as a field technician. Actually, in the EDB, ethyl dibromide program, uh, it was a soil fumigant used to kill nematodes, especially in the citrus areas. But essentially, it, it contaminated the soils. So the thought was, okay, where do you put the wells? How do you put them? And I'm out there doing that kind of stuff, tagging wells, locating, GPS locating as a field tech. I'd already had my degree at the time, but you know, at the district was really hard to get into. And uh, so you gotta get your foot in the door. And that's what I did. Um, worked my way up, got a job in the hydro eval, started working with some brilliant scientists in, the, in that group. Um, a lot of those guys are retiring today, which is interesting, but. Uh, and then farms. Those two projects I talked about ended any science that uh, I was ever gonna do again. Uh, I tell you, if you love science, don't tell people you can, you know, don't let them learn you can talk to people because then you're done. So if you have a scientist that's pretty communicative, um, they're going to find a different role for you. And that's how I kind of got into the management, administration. It kind of, that, that's where the life changed for me, you know. And then, you know, when I went through that natural, I grew up through the districts, which I, through the district, which I think gives me a tremendous advantage, especially when working with folks because I've, I've been at every level that they were at. Yeah. Let me, let me let me ask you about that then. What is what is uh, one is and if it's not one person that's okay. But were were there people that when you're at the district and you're starting out, you know, your kid right out of school, that you looked up to and say, like they've like I want to be I want to be that guy or I want to be that gal. I mean, they're they've got their stuff together. I like the way they operate. I like their management style. Were, were there folks like that? And then what? And then what is your management style? Was it based on you know seeing those attributes in others, or did you bring your own completely your own? Say, hey, I don't, I'll take some of this from here and some of this from there, but here's my style. So I think the answer to your question is yes. You know, there are people. What I've learned in life is really simple, Brett. For me, my management style is theirs. Don't reinvent the wheel. Somebody's done it. And all you have to do is be humble enough to go ask them how and ask them for help. So when I mentor young, younger professionals, I say it's really this, really this simple. If you see someone that has something you want, does something the way you think it should be done, and has been very successful, just go ask. Don't try and figure it out. Just go ask. And if you're willing to do what they did, then you know what it will take. And that is my leadership style. And so my, who I am today, the way I lead is, is, is influence from many, many people in my life. From, of course, my parents to um, a gentleman named Monsignor Higgins. This guy was very influential for me and my belief structure and, you know, how I should act and behave. And, you know, I, you know, he just passed away, but he was a, he was a huge figure in, in Tampa, in Hillsborough County. 
And then, of course, there's some brilliant scientists I've worked at the district who I just admire what they do. You got to let people do what they are best at and then try and guide them towards the mission. And and really, if you get out of their way and help them not to hit minefields, you're going to be successful because these folks are talented and I love working with them. Yeah, I've, I've discovered a bit of, of that myself, which is is you don't you don't need 500 clones or in my case 100 clones of yourself it's that's a terrible terrible idea it's find a bunch of folks who aren't you and who are smarter than you and better than you to go in and do this and 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 then as you say it's like uh, let them do their thing and then and they have it's like we've you know we spent what nearly an hour talking about uh all of those you know those trials and those successes at the end of that and that's got to that's got to feel gratifying it's like especially i mean your home has been swift mud other than you know ups those many years ago it's like but for nearly 25 years so that there's got to be um that's certainly got to be gratifying right to to be able to say that you've been a part of that brief stint at dep but other than that it was mostly swift mud right. and, and you know i try let me put it to you this i didn't get this here without the help from a bunch of people. I, I'm always nervous about naming them because I'm going to leave some folks out and I, I just don't want to do that. The, the the terrible person part of me wants you to, to go through that process, <laughs> but I won't put I won't you through it. I don't want to leave because Florida is the spring state. We've got many, many springs. Um, the one, the district that, that I spent my, my last, you know, 10 years at, you know, I had over 250. Um, you've got some of the the most iconic springs yeah. in the state. Tell me about because you like with other things and other things that were are worth copying. I mean, there are things that you learn from, and there are things that are worth copying from. And Swift Mud has produced both of those, you know, for for other water managers, and I'm no exception to that. Uh, one of those points of emulation was was establishing for the public how serious springs restoration protection was to the water management district and to provide the evidence and easy ways for folks to see in a very transparent way and access to these, as you already said, world-class scientists that are working on solving these problems every day. Um, Tell me a little bit about how, how that started because I remember the conversations, you know, some years ago, we're going to be the experts, you know, we, you know, and you are uh, in these things. You work with stakeholders and local governments and, and organizations, like, but when it comes down to it, your folks are, are the ones that do it every day. Tell me about the start of that and how are things looking right now? In, in your minds, like, and it's not to, you don't have to get to the technical aspects of, well, thinking more of the, the broader sense, like you've got successes in other places. I'm certain that you, you're making some, you know, uh, progress in springs restoration and protection. Yeah, the first thing we wanted to do is bring it home, and we launched a campaign called Our Home, Our Springs. So people in the region took ownership, right? Everybody in the region. You you always have folks who were drawn to the springs and wanted to protect them, but we needed to make that a global response up there. And that was that campaign you were talking about that started it. 
And then we had, and, and then we built the websites. We, and, and the thing was, I think that we put the website out there, but we made the data ac- accessible in graphs and figures and pictures where people could just look and go, ah, I see it. Right. That was a critical part in that education. Since then, we've gone on to develop uh, what's called swim plans, surface water initiative management plans for each of our uh, five magnitude springs. You have local groups up there, uh, Save Our Springs groups that go out there and rake the Lingbia. And so that is one of the most passionate groups we have for each of these springs. But that that passion also brings on a lot of scrutiny. So when we we do the science and, and all the data collection behind setting what an MFL minimum flow and level for a springs, it's never good enough, right? So, you know, we have very passionate discussions when we adopt these MFLs. Hundreds of people will show up at our board meeting wanting sure. to talk about them. Um, so we're continually doing that education. Our, our latest one is, you know, our springs are being loved to death. You know, the, the population of folks, the people that want to visit them, that we're having degradation in the spring runs um, and people are getting out of their boats. They're, you know, putting them up on shore, causing erosion. The trees are falling. It's just a litany of things. So, you know, they're beautiful, but you got to take care of them. So our new education campaign and our dredging project is kind of trying to help restore those areas from all the love they're getting. But, you know. We used to call it manage, managing feet. Managing feet. And, and is that, I mean, is that is that part of it, which is, one is awareness of what happens over time. Your individual canoe or kayak or boat being run into, you know, the the edge of a spring vent or, or a spring run uh, in and of itself doesn't kill it. It's like, but you do that several thousand times a year. An hour. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, yeah, you've got, you've got some really popular places and that's great right i mean you want and that's been part of your campaign is like and and something that's been emulated is uh these websites that show people how wonderful this is go go see it go experience it but be careful is that is that kind of is that the gist of what you're saying and like what is part of it you said you talked about the dredging are there physical projects you know uh beyond that to manage how does that how does that look on in terms of of managing that love right now it's education but now it's going a step further in that there's a statute and it's a springs protection zone statute that sets laws for people getting in and out of their boats and what they can and can't do and that's what people to understand they want the district to go out there and stop people from doing that but we have no enforcement arm we have no police we do science. So to initiate, you know, investigating what's going on with this spring, we did the science. We did the carrying capacity study. We said, hey, basic problem is people keep getting out of their boats and stomping on the grasses and eroding the shorelines. And 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 that led to the effort from the county fishing game, us. We've all got together and say, okay. How's the next step in making this a springs protection zone where there's actual laws that you can enforce to stop people from doing it? Um, we don't want them to stop visiting the springs. We just want a little help to not degrade the, the beautiful thing that they're going to, to go see. And we haven't talked about that, which, which is you know, a, a little bit odd for, you know, for me, but there's a, a, there has to be a relationship between water management districts, uh, DEP, 
Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. How important have those relationships been to to you in terms of of solving those types of problems? I mean, I, I mean, one is you have to. I mean, but there's always the the things that you have to do and the things that you want to do in order to make to make a project successful or program successful. Do you have a close relationship in terms of uh, your approaches with fish and wildlife and, and DEP? I know we do with DEP, right? Because you know we we send you know a lot of the the project requests you know in terms of the the legislatively appropriated springs dollars you know that go through there, but it's more than it's more than money. It's developing projects and developing relationships with these local groups. How does is that something you rely heavily on or how, how would you describe that, that relationship with those agencies and those organizations? So I would tell you that's just the best it's been since I started at the district. That's good. I, right. I know I have relationships with Sean, you know, Hamilton, the DP secretary, Eric Sutton at fish and game, former Swift mug guy Worked with them, you know, so it's, it's a lot easier to work with the agencies than it is the local commissions, you know, and that, that's because they're not elected officials, right? They, they don't have to campaign. They're not up there, right. you know, bringing, bringing it home for their constituents. And, it change, and, they, and they, they change every four years. Right. And, you know, there is, there's no greater campaign than finding a common enemy and then running... Running against them, yeah, a good swift mud argument can get you a county seat pretty easy. But the the uh, I, I tell you, the interaction between the water management districts themselves and DEP is incre- incredible compared to what it was two decades ago. Um, I think I think you know Governor Scott required that and it's only grown under governor DeSantis. Um, it's not, you know, adversarial like it used to be in the past. We, you know, I talked to Drew and Mike and I had a great relationship with Ann, you know, and you, when you were there, you know, and Hugh, but you know, when you were there before that, we didn't talk. Now we talk about issues from a statewide perspective, not just our own, even though we are uniquely different. Right. Um, but there's things, like, yeah, and I've mentioned it at least a few times already. Uh, there are things, uh, and you and I had a habit of this, which is there's a conversation that you are having, you and I are having about the conversation that's that's being had um, on the side or immediately after, and it's and it's bouncing ideas off of each other. I know that happened with uh, Robert Beltran, who is your predecessor, uh, Lyle Siegler, who's my successor, Hugh. Uh, and Mike, I mean, there are Drew, smart people learning things, along, you know, along the way of, boy, that, that was a mess, huh? Like, how, you know, how do I avoid that mess? Or how do I make a success out of this thing that's, that's uh, faltering? And I used to, that's, and that's what I mean. It's like, I learned a lot uh, from you and, and, you know, especially you and Hugh, because you're closer um, and I have history, you know, with Swift Mud, but um I learned, yeah, I learned a ton that way about how to how to move something forward, and I'm sure I, I'm sure that you got 
you know, some of that when you're ta- you know, dealing with the other guys as well and gal as well. Are you talking about the conversations when I truly had no idea how to navigate Tallahassee? And, <laughs> and I would say, Brett, <laughs> what am I doing? What landmine am I stepping on here? I really appreciated that back in the day. And the answer is all of them. All of them. <laughs> um, just to kind of, you know, get us drawn to a close. Um, what keeps you up at night at this point? You, you're telling me about and it's, I'm great. I love to hear it. I, I And I want this podcast and these discussions to be about challenges and successes. And you've had a, a bunch of successes and challenges along the way. But what's keeping you up at night right now? We have a seagrass issue. That, that's one of the things that keeps me up. We've, you know, people used to call them from all around the world to see how, how we set seagrasses, you know, in Tampa Bay back to the 1950s level. Right. It didn't happen anywhere. People come from Chesapeake Bay, other countries. You know, what are you doing? And that's a whole nother story. Last time we, we, we map seagrasses every two years. This is the first time we've suffered significant losses. And it was before the Piney Point discharges. We did all the mapping. So it wasn't that. Right. Um, so why? Why is that happening? In our northern seagrass area, we actually grew a little bit. But Tampa Bay's been such a success, and I'm talking thousands of acres of seagrass we lost, not a couple hundred acres, thousands. Why? That keeps me up at night. How much further are we going to have to go to recover those seagrasses? And it could have been the culmination of a lot of things on the red tide and discharges, and might have been a perfect storm. But until I have that answer, that keeps me up at night. Water supply authorities have been the single most cost-effective way to develop alternative supplies. Helped us recover the lakes, helps us recover Swaka. We just developed a new one in Polk County that I've spent a lot of blood, sweat, and tears helping put together. Um, keeping those groups together because it's now it's time to build sources, which means hundreds of millions of dollars, which means every community has their, their best way of doing it, which will singularly benefit them the most. How do I keep them playing ball together? That's going to be a tough one. Um, but right now, you've got to take some, again, it's like, you know, uh, a little bit of solace in seeing that you've, you've had some successes at this point. And that's been a long time coming, right? With the Polk Regional Water Cooperative. Cooperative, yep. But you, you've had some some recent successes and a, and a path forward. But the trick is to keep a, that very diverse group of municipalities together right is that is that what you mean with you've got i always get this wrong and sorry polk county um how many municipalities in polk county 17 17 so 17 different sets of elected officials all human beings that all have their own thoughts about things which is what they were elected to do all pulling in often different directions but in this case right now in a direction which uh, which i think you know credit to them credit to you but there's a long way to go right with with that is that like everywhere else polk county's growing and so is is that one of the is that what you mean like how do you keep 17 sets of folks and yourself and your you know and your board and the state all focused on because if you ask me what 
why are they so effective? Why are water supply authorities so effective? Because they do one thing. They make water. Whereas a municipality has to decide, do I want to make water? Do I want to build a school? Do I need that road? Do I need to... Where am I going to do with those water utility you know, funds I'm collecting? Yeah. It's a singular focus, and it makes them very effective. I'll tell you this. In my experience, it's not always the money and when it comes to water. It's the control. People will spend more money to keep control over their water supplies. And I've seen it happen again and again and again. So, you know, it's either going to be an environmental push that makes you do it or the district that says you can't have a permit anymore. And, you know, that was the whole purpose for the Polk Cooperative was try to avoid what we went through in the water wars. And like I said, my pet peeve is paying attorneys and not building. So that's what I was up against. And I would love to, I want to see that stay together. And when I made the reference to potable reuse, it gets right back at this because you have, you have the new law that says you can't discharge it. Then you have municipalities who can't discharge it, wants to find a way to use it, but they want to use it and keep it all themselves instead of developing it with the water supply authority. So that's going to be a challenge in the future that, that, that keeps me awake. I'll throw, out, I'll throw out something in a later conversation. Well, I want to definitely have you back in because there's a, there's a whole universe of things that, that we could discuss. One of those, one of those things that we, can, that we can talk about you know, in our, our next sit down is, is should the district's water management district's role, meaning regional districts and the state's role in the development of those resources to prevent directly developing these resources to prevent that kind of competition uh, in the future. I'll leave it there and we'll, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it later. Um, I want to end on something really positive. And so I want to hear, and I know it's tough to pick one. What would you say, like one of your biggest, biggest, success stories has been what are you most proud of so far and it doesn't have to be a project or a program um but what are you most proud of so far 25 years it's a good chunk you got you got a ways to go brother before you you finish um what are you most proud of so far this is gonna sound hokey brett but you know we are not we've had successes but we not we're not who we are from our success in the past even our success today, it's what we're going to be in the future. And what I'm proud of is, I think my people think that. We don't rest on our laurel. We've got, we've got things that we're going to be great at in the future. So what I'm most proud of hasn't happened yet is the way I'm going to leave that because it's still coming. And it's not far away, but it's coming and we're going to get there pretty quick. I like the way, I like the way that sounds. That sounds, what do you say, meta? That sounds, I, I, li- I like it. I like it. Um, Ryan Armstrong, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Brett. All right, Brian's now left the podcast. Another huge thank you to him for providing some interesting insights into what's going on in West Central Florida and for an eye-opening progress report on water resource restoration outcomes in his corner of the state. You've been listening to the Water for Fighting podcast. You can reach me at flwaterpod at gmail.com or on Twitter and Instagram at flwaterpod with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Thanks again to Florida Water Advocates for sponsoring this episode of Water for Fighting. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Swan for making the best of what he had to work with. 
and to Dave Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for this podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check the band out live or wherever amazing music is sold. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer. <laughs>